0: Tuesday's coming. Yes, <laughs> Amen. You know what Tuesday is? Voting. Voting. Day voting. Day after Monday. That is technically correct. Not really where I was going. Um, Tuesday is voting day in California, and it's always an interesting thing. We've already filled out our ballots, but... Um, it's an interesting opportunity as believers to put into practice, love your neighbor as yourself. That's why we get involved in community, why we get involved in voting. And as you go through the issues, we, we try, and, and I encourage you to try to think through what would what, what a godly worldview have me vote in this area? When we think of candidates, we want to look at character, and we want to look at where they're at in their personal lives and their leadership skills and their character, and that's part of what we think of when we vote, Right? And so I'm not going to stand up here and tell you who to vote for, but think character, think godly worldview. Now, you're probably wondering where I'm going with that. One of the things when we think about ministers and someone in ministry, we think of certain characteristics. Now, it's more natural to think of qualifications for someone in ministry, right? What are some of the qualifications that you would want for someone in ministry? Be kind. (laughs) Has to like the Dodgers. Let me write that down. <laughs> well, so what would be good qualifications for someone in ministry? Perfection. <laughs> I'm skipping anything from that corner, right? <laughs> Sometimes we're expecting perfection, but maybe we shouldn't be. Heart after God? Okay? I'm going to write some of these down. Integrity, servant's heart. Humility, I'm writing as fast as I can. <laughs> Humility, patience, listening. Knowledge of God's Word. Of God's word. Level head, openness. Communication skills. Communication skills. I'm going to stop there. That's quite a list let me just read what you came up with in one minute heart for god integrity servant's heart humility patience listening knowledge of god's word level head openness communication skills good start right for someone that is um, in ministry so here's my second question today who's in ministry all of us you thought you were describing what my job description should be right uh, some of you know where i'm going with this what did we talk about in second corinthians 5 we are all ambassadors ephesians 4 what does paul say that he's given pastors to to equip the saints to minister And so this morning, right before we get to the text, I want to acknowledge the list of of qualifications for ministry is extensive and it's hard and it's beautiful all at the same time. And it's a list that applies to everyone in here. How many of you are ministers? It's okay to raise your hand. It gets you woken up a little bit. Every hand should be up that's a believer. Every believer is an ambassador, is a minister for Christ. And so we come to the text today, and Paul is equipping the church at Corinth to be ministers. And we're we're in Second Corinthians 11, and as you know from Pastor Andrew and Pastor Andrew, um, the last two weeks. We've been talking about, and Paul's been trying to defend the church against false teachers. Some people had come into Corinth and were teaching a different doctrine than Paul. They were saying that they were better, and they had an impressive list of qualifications. They had an impressive list of recommendations. And they started to denounce Paul and say, well, Paul doesn't speak as well. He's not uh, as bold when he's with you. He's pretty weak. You know, he's not even with you right now. And their goal is not to build up the church at Corinth. Their goal is to gain followers and money for themselves. And that's just the bottom line. And so Paul is watching this happen. And an illustration that I want to use throughout the morning. Parents, how do you feel when you watch your children start to walk away from God? There is nothing like it. In the pit of your stomach to watch your child walk away from God. That is what Paul is feeling for the church at Corinth. And we have to understand that to see the depths that he's willing to go to to address this issue. Think of what would you do as a parent to bring your child back to Christ. You'd do just about anything, wouldn't you? Because that is the goal. And so we come to 2 Corinthians 11 and Paul's about to do something that he's never done or rarely does. He's about to boast in his qualifications. And share some of his qualifications, not because he wants to, but because he feels like this is the only way to get through to his children in the faith. And he's willing to put himself out there to do that. Turn with me to Second Corinthians chapter eleven. Second Corinthians chapter eleven, verses sixteen through thirty three. Second Corinthians eleven sixteen to thirty three. And we're going to pick up, uh, this is the beginning of, of what we would call the fool's speech. And you'll see that from Paul's um, wording here. He calls himself a fool. He says this is foolish to do. This is his fool's speech to attempt to humble himself to reach his children in the faith and bring them back to the, the faith. In your notes, you see two main points. Don was all excited. He's like, this could be a really short sermon, right? Except you might notice the second point has 25 subpoints. We'll get through it, I promise. It's a little different text, and so I want to approach it a little differently today. But Paul starts in 16 through 21, and and he starts by preparing them to receive his boasting of himself, his credentials, what he's about to do. But he's, he does it by reminding them of where they're slipping. So if we look at point number one, we need to guard who we listen to and what we tolerate. Guard who we listen to and what we tolerate. How have we let the world creep in? Let's start reading at verse 16. I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool, so that I too may boast a little. Now there's some interesting wording here, and some things that we, we have to understand what's going on, but Paul is saying, I don't want you to think I'm a fool, because of what I'm about to say about myself. But, Since you already think I'm foolish, will you bear with me a little bit and listen to me as a fool? Do you see what he's doing? And so he's using their impression of him to open a door for them to listen to him. And he's going to go on and say this a little later. He's like, you think you're so wise and you can put up with fools, so why don't you put up with me a little bit? Listen to me. Listen to what I have to say. I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool so that I too may boast a little what i am saying what i am saying with this boastful confidence i say not as the lord but as a fool and right from the start he, he's basically saying this isn't how i would normally go about it this isn't how how the ideal of what jesus or what god would want me to do but it's what i have to do because it's the only thing you'll give me and so he says i say not as the lord or not as the lord would or would have me do in normal situations but I'm going to use your own foolish techniques to show you how foolish you are. So are you getting your head around this? You'll see it as we go on, what, what he's meaning by that. But he's finding ways to reach them, and he's using their own foolishness to do that. Have you ever done that with your kids? Sometimes kids say really foolish things. And, and as a parent, sometimes you start to echo those back to them a little bit. So so you really think that you're going to be able to do this and not sin? Really? And we're echoing back their foolishness, or sometimes we help them step through where the end of that decision leads to that they're not thinking of because they're thinking two steps, and as a parent, you're thinking 20 steps down the road. But we sort of indulge their foolishness a little bit to show them how foolish it is. That's what Paul's doing with the church at Corinth. I too will boast. Or 18. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. He's saying, if this is what you're willing to listen to, I'm going to go there too and show you just how silly it is. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. This whole paragraph you also need to read with just a healthy dose of sarcasm. Paul is, is he's getting to the heart of the matter and digging it in a little bit. And so he says, for you gladly bear with fools because you're so wise. 20, for you bear it if someone makes slaves of you or devours you or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. And at that point, Paul starts to turn the knife a little bit. Turn the dagger a little bit. And he says, here's what is actually happening. You're bearing with it your your wisdom that says, oh, I can listen to this teacher, and I can listen to this false doctor, and I can do this that's sort of worldly, but it's it'll be okay. And he says, here's what it's doing. It's making slaves of you. Slaves to sin. It's devouring you, eating you up from the inside. It takes advantage of you. Those people are taking advantage of you because these these false teachers were just taking their money and they didn't really care and, and they were taking advantage of them or puts on airs or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. Right there, it's like, Wow. Because what he's doing is just a brilliant form of argumentation. And in 20, he's exposing what all of these teachers and the authoritarianism of these teachers is doing. And I once heard a story of a pastor that was up, up teaching, and he's teaching, and all of a sudden he sees someone sort of sort of not paying attention. I could pick somebody right now. And, 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 and he calls them out in front of everybody. And he says, you're not paying attention to me. You should be paying attention. What do you do? What is more important? And he uses spiritual terms. What is important, more important than God's word? You know. So you think something else right in front of everybody. What do you think that does to their heart? And then he spies someone else in the back who happens to be... And this this was another pastor. This is a true story. This is another pastor that was sitting there. The other pastor was sitting in the back and he, someone else was looking up cross-references in his Bible. So tracking along with the sermon and he's looking in the Old Testament and the, the pastor sees that he's not in the same text as where they're at. And he, he calls him out and says, So you don't think it's it's good enough that you should be doing the same thing we are? You think what you want to study is better than what I'm teaching? And he calls him out. The pastor went on to listen to the rest of the sermon and there's all kinds of doctrinal errors and everything was about bringing authority and bringing control back to the pastor. And we think that is horrible, but that is essentially what was happening at Corinth. These false teachers were coming in and grabbing hold of them and demanding attention and demanding money and demanding them to follow, which is why they had to put Paul down. Paul says, let's not have divisions. In, in, in 1 Corinthians, some are of Cephas, some are of Paulus, some are of me, some are of Christ. No, no, no. We're all on the same team. These guys were trying to grab hold of them. And so Paul, Paul's heart is broken for this church. And he says, they're so strong that, and, and you, you just take it. They're making slaves of you. They're devouring you. They're taking advantage of you. They're putting on airs." They strike you in the face. And in fact, culturally at the time, if someone spoke blasphemy to a rabbi or, or, or something that the rabbi would disagree with doctrinally, they would hit him across the face with the back of their hand. And Paul's saying, you're taking this. Why? Why are you taking this? And why are you abandoning what I have taught you? And then in 21, he just really turns the knife. To my shame. I must say, we were too weak for that. And he's referring to, I don't know if you remember in in the last chapter, um, chapter 10, verse 10, one of the accusations against Paul, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak in his speech of no account. And so Paul's accused of being weak, of not being controlling, of not being a dictator when he's with them. And Paul's saying, is that really what you want? You've allowed people to do that to take you away from the gospel, to take you away from Christ. An incredible way to start a fool's speech because it's actually brilliant. But he's playing the fool so they'll listen to him. Out of all that, the the point that I have is guard who we listen to and what we tolerate because he's telling them you've tolerated things that are not from God. You've listened to people who do not have godly characteristics as servants of Christ. And they're tearing you down and taking you away from the faith. You know, when I think of applications, a couple of applications out of this section. Number one, I think we can learn from Paul's example. Paul here is wise in how he interacts with them. He doesn't just come out and defend himself. He's he's playing the fool a little bit even though he's not, to try to show them the error of their ways, he's wise and shrewd in how he interacts with them. And we can learn a lot from this of how we interact with each other, to come and find ways that will make our point. Find ways that will open a door to communication instead of put up brick walls. You know, I think even in culture this, this applies. We, we talked earlier this year about the abortion issue. And so many times we approach the abortion issue with ways that put up walls and nobody will ever listen to us. But if we're shrewd, if we're smart in how we do this and and follow Paul's example, we can engage that conversation, a winnable conversation, just with some simple logic. And and we went through that with abortion and and we went through the, the simple premise that the taking of an innocent life is wrong. And the second premise that an unborn child in the womb is an innocent life. And then the conclusion is the taking of an unborn child is wrong. And you just ask, where is that wrong? What what do you disagree with? And they'll usually disagree with that it's a life and then you can go into things, but shrewdly and wisely engaging where they're at to show the error of their ways to bring them to that. And and that's a brilliant way that Paul is doing this. When we think of the current issue with the bathroom issue and the transgender issue, And we can get all mad and we can get all upset and I'm upset. I'm angry about it. I'll admit it. But the, the, the the way that we're going to win that is to be shrewd and to be wise and to start to expose, okay, I I understand you want to support the, the rights of the, the gender confused. But what about the rights and the sexual identity of those that, the other 99.5%? You know, what about, and sometimes if you're talking to someone, just ask the question, would you be okay if, if your young daughter had a man come in and expose himself to her? And engage with questions and then show them that the logic of that position is absurd. And, and then you begin, I'm not saying you'll change their mind, but you're engaging a conversation. Paul is taking where they're at, their premises, and going to show how, how absurd they are. He's going to show the holes in logic. When we think of relativism that is rampant in our culture, if it's right for you, it must be right. Whatever you feel is right for you. That is so simple to debunk because what if what you feel and what I feel are at odds with each other? Who wins? And that question alone cuts to the heart of that issue. And I'm not trying to simplify these issues, but start conversations because we have to know enough about these issues. Paul is willing to do what it takes to reach them. I could go on with all kinds of different philosophies and worldviews, but are we shrewd enough and are we wise enough to engage? Be wise in how we interact. Find a way to get through and connect. The second, and probably the more direct application, the one that the point is, is we need to be on guard for drift. And the point was guard who we listen to and what do we tolerate. Are we on guard against theological drift? Against the letting those voices in our head be there that we know are not walking with God? I can remember a few years back when the book The Shack came out and I did a Sunday school class on the, on the shack and, and showed a number of theological errors, just a horrid book when it comes to theology. Really nice to read and I remember talking with someone and they're talking with me and they said, well, I just don't understand why you oppose it. It was so readable. And I said, I oppose it because it's wrong. Because it's bad theology. And they said, but I learned so much about God through it. But what you learned about God was wrong. And do you you see what was happening? They were taking their emotional reaction to the book and viewing that as truth instead of evaluating the truth of the book. When I, when I think of some of the books that are out recently and, and some, some of the, the attachment to all these books about 30 minutes in heaven or 91 minutes in heaven, I don't know what they all are. We have to be careful because God, ha- we have God's word and there is no revelation beyond that. And God doesn't need a toddler to tell us what heaven is about. And... and, and and I see us go down these paths because we're searching for something when the answer is in God's Word. And what He has given us is sufficient for life and godliness. And we don't need to look elsewhere but from God's Word. And I'm concerned like Paul is for the church in America. Do we drift And those are just, I think of a lot of the false teachers that are are out there, the health and wealth. And I think I've told you, sitting in a a room with some pastors, and one of the pastors just said, I'm just going to put it out there, I believe in health and wealth. God wants us to be rich and never be sick. And all the other pastors in the room are just quiet. (laughs) We're like, did you actually just say that? But boy, is that appealing. Boy, does that make people come in, because who doesn't want to be rich and never sick? The problem is, is it's not truth. It's not God's Word. Sometimes drift happens just with worldliness or worldly philosophies. When we think of culture today, I, I think that this idea of entitlement and, and that I am number one is so pervading our society and I'm watching it pervade the church too. Not, not, I'm not speaking of village specifically, but the church as a whole. And we see that with laziness and we we see that with everything should come to me and come easy to me and be here to serve me. Are we standing against these philosophies? Or do we need to hear Paul say, for you bear it if someone makes slaves of you or devours you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or strikes you in the face? Village, let's be diligent be diligent to know God's word, to know truth, to know errors, but also to know where we're slipping into an ungodly worldview, into a secular worldview. All of that's the setup for the next section of the passage. And point number two is really the main point of the morning. Paul's example challenges us to offer our entire lives in service to God. Because as he sets up the, his qualifications and his full speech, it really is going to come down to one thing, surrender to God. The qualification has to be surrendering every part of my life to God. And what I'd like to do with this section, sometimes with lists, the eyes sort of gloss over. You're like, okay, he has 25 things, actually 29 if you count the first part in his notes. And um, I'm just going to sit and listen and we're going to get through the next half hour and move on with our day. And with lists we can gloss over. What I'd like to do this morning is to take the rest of our time and chew on this list a little bit. Devour it a little bit. Understand it. A lot of history here, but why is this list in God's Word? Because this isn't just about Paul. All Scripture is given for instruction, for correction, for teaching, for training. So why is this in there? And I believe it's in there as an example to us. So I want to digest this a little bit. So I'm going to take it phrase by phrase. We'll explain it, and then we'll we'll go from there. Paul starts in the second half of 21. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. And he opens it by saying, okay, those things that those teachers are boasting of, and he says, I know this is really foolish, but I can boast that way too. And he's doing this to expose them. And then in 22, and we start to, to with four things that are really Paul's pedigree, his credentials. And the first thing he mentions, are they Hebrews? So am I. He's not talking about the book of the Bible there. The, when, when someone re- referred to, I'm Hebrew, they were referring that they had pure Jewish blood. There's a, an ethnic purity. And the teachers were coming in and saying, well, I'm I'm the real Hebrew here. I'm the real Jew. You should listen to me. Paul, he was from Tarsus. And Paul's like, no, no. Are are they Hebrew, pure Jewish ancestry? So am I. Are they Israelites? And and there's a lot of debate of what's the difference here. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but Israelites probably means more the spiritual side of things, Hebrew the more ethnic side of things. Are they Israelites? So am I. Remember, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees, taught by the best. He followed the law. Are they offspring of Abraham? Are they part of the covenant? Are they part of the inheritance? So am I. And up to this point, those three things, the false teachers were trying to use to discredit Paul. And Paul's like, we're on equal footing here. We're we're on equal footing here. So let's just throw those things away. And he gets to the fourth thing, which is the the covering for the rest of the text. Are they servants of Christ? And that's the question he wants to get to. I would highlight that, underline that. That's the center point of this fool's rant. Are they servants of Christ? of Christ. And instead of saying, so am I, because they aren't, he says, I am a better one. And we might think, wow, what arrogance. And he knows that that's how it's going to be taken. So he says, I'm talking like a madman. This is craziness for me to even have to say this. But then the rest of the speech is going to define what it means to be a servant of Christ. And he's going to prove that they are not servants of Christ and that being a servant of Christ means surrender to what God is wanting to do. These credentials, this pedigree, reminds us of Philippians 3, 4-7. through 7. Though I myself have, and this Paul again to the church at Philippi, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And so he comes to, he's a servant of Christ. And the rest of the text outlines his trials and his sacrifice. And it's really a strange way to boast. It's, 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 it's not where you would expect to go. D.A. Carson Wright, if, he said, if I was Paul, this is what I would have, have expected or what I would have written. I have established more churches. I have preached the gospel in more lands and to more ethnic groups. I have traveled more miles. I have won more converts. I have written more books. I have raised more money. I have dominated more councils. I have walked with God more fervently and seen more visions. I have commanded the greatest crowds and performed the most spectacular miracles. That's not Paul but that's what we would expect. And that's what the times would have expected because it was normal to commend yourself in this way. In fact, Caesar Augustus, one of the inscriptions about him said, twice have I had the lesser triumph. Three times the full Karul triumph. 21 times I have been saluted as imperator. 55 times has the Senate decreed a thanksgiving under the immortal gods. Nine kings or children of kings have been led before my chariot in my triumphs. Thirteen times I have been consul. That's not what Paul writes. Paul takes a completely different point. And knowing this, I think he's mocking this side of things. And he's mocking how the false teachers were commending themselves. And so yes, he's hesitant to boast, but we're going to find out it's not really boasting in his greatness. It's boasting in his weakness. And so let's break this down and, and look. And these are the... The 25 things. I left you some blanks so that way you don't check out. You have to fill those in before you leave. Because 25 things, I know, let, let's, let's digest these. So Paul says, I'm talking like a madman. This is craziness. Instead, he says, I've had far greater labors. He's talking about hard work, strenuous exertions. This hasn't been easy. And and this whole first section is what I've called opposition issues. And you're going to see it's imprisonments and beatings and people coming against them. And there's four different categories of these issues. And he starts with opposition issues. Man, it's been hard. Well, that's not really boasting. If I'm boasting, I'm like, that's pretty easy. Yeah, that was nothing. Three home runs? Huh, piece of cake. Dodgers did that a couple nights ago. Instead, he says, greater labors. He says, far more imprisonments. Imprisonments were not looked at highly at the time. This would have been embarrassing to say. Far more imprisonments. Now, it's interesting. There's a couple things that that are fascinating about this passage. At the time this was written, we only know of one imprisonment in Acts. In Acts 16, his imprisonment at Philippi. And what we're going to find out from this list, it's a reminder that Acts is not a complete list of Paul's journeys. In fact, he was imprisoned a bunch of times. We just, they're not all recorded in Acts. Luke didn't record them all. And even that, when I was thinking about that, I'm like, wow, Acts seemed pretty tough to me. And that just scratched the surface. Wow. Far more imprisonments. Countless beatings. And this verse is really serving to sort of summarize some of the things that are coming. Countless beatings. Often near death. These are not what I would have listed as qualities for a man of God. But they are. And this is what Paul is showing them. To follow Christ is a whole different ballgame than taking authority and taking power and taking glory. It means surrender. It means giving of ourselves. And it's incredible. It's awesome. Countless beatings, often near death. And then he goes into some of the specifics. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. And this was a Jewish... The lashes were a Jewish punishment. And some of, a lot of people said, well, what does it mean 40 lashes less one? And one of the popular theories is, well, they, they thought that that after 40 lashes, it would kill a person. That's probably not the case. In Deuteronomy... Deuteronomy 25, it prescribes that you can only give someone 40 lashes. After that, it doesn't help anymore. And so the Pharisees of the time, they would surround the law, and remember what they did? They put fences around the law and said, okay, if I can't work on the Sabbath, I can only walk a hundred steps or things like that. They did the same thing to this law. And they said, in case the guy miscounted, and, and and somehow lost track? We don't want him to sin by accidentally giving 41. So let's just say only give 39. That way, we're not sinning. And so they, they were really nice to only give 39. They were following God. That's what they thought. And Paul's like, five times. Five times I've had 39 lashes. And this isn't even the end of his ministry yet. I think there's some, some irony here too, because he used to be the one giving those lashes to Christians. He was on his way to Damascus, and that's going to come up at the end of the story, to t- take Christians away and give them lashes, kill them. And now he's saying, this is what my life is like. Three times beaten with rods. And the rods were usually a Roman punishment. Lashes, Jewish punishment. Rods, Roman punishment. And we know of, we know of one. In Philippi again, the crowds joined in attacking them. The magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And in fact, they got in trouble for that, the the magistrates because they weren't supposed to do that to a Roman citizen. But Paul says, no, actually, it's happened more. Acts just scratches the surface of what Paul went through. One... um, One author said, in carrying out a sentence, a lictor, the attendant of a magistrate, carried before the magistrate a bundle of elm or birch rods and an axe. Criminals were flogged with the rods, and at times the axe was used for beheadings. This is serious stuff. And Paul says, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, probably referring to Lystra, when the mob came and tried to stone him. But he survived, which is just amazing all on its own. Three times I was shipwrecked. And this, this is the second section, the danger issues, the, the travel issues. So we, Paul had opposition and was in jail and beaten and stoned. And now there's just dangers from traveling. Three times he was shipwrecked. And again, more than we know in Acts. But we know that he had at least nine different travels by ship by this point. Traveling by ship was not a fun thing at the time. Now, it was sometimes easier than going over land, but there were storms, and they didn't have the big, you know, Disney cruise line. This was a small vessel that they would sleep on the top, and they didn't have compasses, and they, they or they, they had some compasses, but they didn't have all the equipment that we have today. And so you'd run into storms, you'd run into squalls. Three times, he was shipwrecked. There would be another on the way to Rome. He was a night and a day adrift. Think about that for a minute. 24 hours floating on a piece of wood in the middle of the sea. You don't survive that, but he did. These are his qualifications, by the way. He goes on, on frequent journeys. NIV, I think, does a good job of translating this constantly on the move. He, he's always moving around from place to place, doesn't have a, a really home. He's using plurals here too to show how pervasive the dangers were. And, and if you notice all the way through, um, and you don't see it in the ESV, but the danger there, it's, it's always the plural. There's all these multiple dangers. In dangers from rivers. Again, they didn't have the technology we have. You forded rivers. And if there was if there was flood season, you got swept away. We're seeing in the news, even today, with our technology today, we're seeing in the news Texas, right? And flooding, and at Fort Hood, some guys were trying to shut down roads, and it swept their car away and overturned it. This was life for Paul. In danger from rivers, in danger from robbers. And again, if you remember, in, in trying to help us understand what all this means, remember the parable of the Good Samaritan? Man's going from Jerusalem down to Jericho. Not that far. But one of the things that was commonplace is as you went through these rocky, rocky trails, there were robbers that would come and mug you and take your stuff. That was their living. And so there was a whole systems of don't travel alone and only travel in the daytime. Paul was always in danger from robbers. Then it gets a little more personal. Dangers from his own people. Other Jews. In fact, he's writing to Corinth. In his first time in Corinth, the Jews were so upset at Paul that they drug him to the governor and before the Bema seat. Dangers from Gentiles. So dangers from his own people, Gentiles, that pretty much includes everybody. Dangers in the city. Dangers in the wilderness. Dangers at sea. And then the last one is sort of, again, the the, the gotcha. Dangers from false brothers. And that's other Christians. And in this case, probably directly calling out the false teachers at Corinth. And he said, I've been going through it. These are my qualifications. And I'm including the people that are falsely accusing me and leading you astray. And he calls them out. Sometimes we think, well, maybe we shouldn't call out false teachers. We absolutely should call out false teachers. Going back to the parenting, if you have a friend that you know is telling lies to your child... Is that the time to be nice? No, it's the time to say they're lying. They're lying. A lot of dangers. So, just just a little aside, a little parenthesis. When I read this part of the list and all the dangers, I think about God's protection, I think about God's sovereignty. Did Paul's message go, go forth? Yeah. Did he continue? Did any of these things stop him? No. Why? Because Paul is incredible and Superman? No, no. This list is not your incredible list. But because God is incredible and sovereign and protects. And so there's encouragement from hearing this. The work still went on. And I know, I know we can make safety such an important part of life. Well, I want to keep my kids from danger. I want to keep my family from danger. I want to be in a nice, safe place and not send them on anything where any risks can happen. And they will never see God work. Because God is sovereign. And God is powerful. And what's more important than safety is how are we doing His work. Don't make safety your God. It's an awful God. And so Paul lists all these dangers under the danger travel issues. He moves, moves on now and the next section I call hardship issues, or just daily conditions. Some have said these are conditions he, he chose. In verse 27, in toil and hardship, he labored. And he, yeah, this goes back to what he said earlier at the opening, but he labored and toiled. This was hard work. And, and if you remember through some of the, the history of Paul, he often supported himself. In fact, in Corinth, we know it from Acts 18, he was up at night or during the day, whenever he had extra time, making tents and making a living for himself. And then he was teaching where he could. He worked hard so that he could be an ambassador for Christ. He goes on, and and in that same vein, through many a sleepless night... And this probably isn't due to anxiety. He deals with that in a different section. This is probably due to all that work, teaching and tent making. He had a tough schedule. He was willing to lose sleep for the gospel. He was willing to lose sleep for discipleship. He was willing to put aside personal comfort. Think about that. He goes on to something that maybe is a little more near and dear to us. In hunger... And thirst, often without food. He didn't always have enough support. He didn't always have enough to eat. He didn't always eat his vegetables and have three square meals. Sometimes he was just happy to get something to eat. But it was worth it. In cold and exposure, he didn't always have a place to stay stay. And lodging and clothing were sometimes an issue. So sometimes he was just out in the cold. Sometimes he didn't have the clothing he needed. All of those things he joyfully accepted for the gospel. See, authentic ministry isn't about leisure and comfort. If we want leisure and comfort, God's work and the church is not the place to be. We're to be battling for the kingdom. We're to be reaching and ministering. And Paul understood that the path to true joy was sacrifice and giving those things up. Because the more we hold on to leisure and comfort, you see it, you see it in friends, you see it in ourselves, the more we hold on to leisure and comfort, the more they escape us because they become our God. Paul goes on in really one of the most personal sections, a a staggering section that I entitled Ministry Heartache. Ministry heartache. In verse twenty-eight, and apart from other things, so there's all those things, and I'm thinking those are all pretty major things. Apart from the, from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. You might say, well, you're not supposed to be anxious for anything. No, you're not supposed to be anxious for self and, and for what you need. But we know from this and other passages that Paul was anxious for the church. He wanted the church to walk with God. Not just Corinth, but all the churches he planted. He was concerned for their spiritual walk, for their spiritual health. He goes on and and describes it in two more things. Who is weak and I am not weak. And he's saying, when I I look at the churches, if I see a weaker brother or if I see someone starting to stumble, it hurts me. I'm weak with that. And then the, the, the second half of that is the next one. Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? That word for indignant means to set on fire or to be upset. New American Standard translates it intense concern. And he's saying, it kills me when you sin. It drives me nuts in the heart. It it burns in my heart when you walk away from God. And this section just rings so true to my heart. Because as I look back now at, at, at 20 years here as a pastor at Village, what sometimes captures my heart is the people that I've ministered to that are, are not walking with God anymore. And it tears me up. Because more than anything, I pray that as a church we are helping each other be disciples of Christ. And to see someone abandon the faith and walk away from God, I die a little bit inside. And so I understand what Paul is saying. I understand the sleepless nights due to anxiety, due to praying all night for someone that I know is considering sin. Keep in mind, Who are ministers? All of us. Who are ambassadors? All of us. This isn't just to be my heart as your pastor. This is to be the heart of every one of us as we disciple each other and invest in each other. If we find out somebody is walking away from God, it should burn in every one of our hearts that way. And there should be tears and there should be anguish and there should be an intense desire to how can I love on them and bring truth into their lives and bring them back to God. Let me just read some verses that show Paul's heart. First Thessalonians 3.5 For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. In Romans, for God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you for I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. Philippians 1, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you and always making my prayer with joy. And he goes on and on and on. One of his qualifications was that he ached for people to know Christ. And that should be every one of us. When you're discipling someone and you enter a discipling relationship with somebody, you should ache for their spiritual souls. And they should ache for yours. Paul goes on, and we need to wrap up. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness the God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King aridus was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. And he gets to this final illustration of weakness, and he goes back to the beginning. Damascus is where he was going to persecute the Christians. On the road to Damascus is where Jesus met him. He was saved. He goes into Damascus and Ananias comes and he's trained and he starts to preach about Jesus in the synagogues. They rise up against him to such a degree that he had to be let down in a basket through the wall, which would have been embarrassing and humiliating. And for someone that was his first place of Christian ministry and that's how it ended, great. That's how it's going to start. It's like striking out 20 times in a row when you start your baseball career. Really? Really? And Paul's saying, this just shows my weakness and how great God is, and that's where he's going to go in the next chapter. See, instead of weakening the message, selfless sacrifice that we see here punctuates the message. The the, the false teachers would have never given credentials like this. Never. It would have been embarrassing. But Paul knew that that sacrifice showed how genuine the message was and how genuine his heart was. The false teachers had failed to offer their entire lives in service of Christ. They failed. But Paul showed a different way. Think through that list. What's your first reaction as you read that list of what Paul was willing to do? Because this morning, I don't want it to be how great Paul was. What a servant Paul was for me as I studied it and I've read it over and over, I get to the end each time and say, man, I am such a wimp. What am I willing to sacrifice for Christ? I have it really easy compared to Paul. What am I willing to sacrifice? Today, as we come to communion, and elders, if you want to come up, the whole point of the passage what I want it to be is to see Paul's example and to say, what do I need to give up in my life? Not even give up, but what do I need to surrender and say, God, use every part of my life to serve you? Uh, Pastor Andrew and I were talking yesterday that so many times we're a wimpy people. We're, we're a wimpy people. And I'm including myself in that. And sometimes my dad would call me on it, you know, as, as, I, as I get up at my time, and he'd be like, half the day is gone, son because he's not a wimp. He knows how to work. And I I see the moms that have raised families that knew how to be moms and raise families and to embrace that and dads who were willing to work hard to support their family and men and women that were willing to share Christ wherever they had opportunities. And sometimes I look at my life and say, I am a wimp. And I don't want to wallow there this morning. I want to say from Paul's example, how can we not be wimps? Let's step up. Let's step up and find ways to serve God. Find ways to be ministers for God. I'm not just talking evangelism. I'm talking discipleship. I'm talking serving one another. I'm talking encouraging people to walk with God. Now, how are you going to put it into practice? Something like this is just very heady. It's, it's, yeah, I get it. I get what you're doing and we can feel guilty. Let me just give you two ideas and we'll just take a couple minutes. Two ideas that are simple, don't cover it, but get you started. Does that make sense? Number one, every Sunday, commit to coming and finding one person you're going to minister to. What you're doing is battling a a consumer mindset. What you're doing is uh, you're coming in a different way. Every Sunday, if every person in this room says, I'm going to minister to someone else in this room, I'm not talking necessarily official church ministry. Actually, I think the best ministry happens one-on-one and off to the side that come every Sunday and say, I'm going to minister to at least one person. And it changes our view of church and whether I'm willing to give my whole self to God in that. Second thing, every week say, is there one person outside of church that I can minister to, that I can show God's love to? I'm not saying you've got to pin them to the wall and say, if you're not saved, I'm not letting you down. I'm saying show them God's love. Show them what it means to walk with God. Those two things, just simple things. Come to church every week. Who am I going to minister to? One person. Every week, is there one person outside of church I can minister to? And it begins to orient ourselves to being servants of Christ that Paul defines as sacrifice, not authority. Bask in Paul's example because it comes from Christ's example. We sang about that this morning. Man of sorrows. Jesus, I believe you. Christ gave all so you and I could sit here. That's the foundation for us giving all back to Him because we owe Him that. And so it's fitting that we end today with communion, that we end by remembering through the crackers His body that was given for us, His life that was freely given and sacrificed so we could have salvation because we can't earn it ourselves. The juice that represents His blood that was spilt in payment, not for his sin, but for your sin and my sin. When we remember his sacrifice here, we then can start to follow his example and Paul's example and give our lives in service to God. Let me pray and thank God for his sacrifice. Lord God, our Father, we come today to remember, but not just to remember cognitively in our head, but to remember with our actions and our hearts and to say by remembering this will change me. Lord, help us to take seriously that everyone in this room, every believer in this room is an ambassador, is a minister. And this list isn't to get us down and say, oh, my life's going to be horrible, but this list is actually the most fulfilling way to live life as your servants, watching you work, watching lives changed, watching you protect and guide and empower Lord, I pray that you would empower Village to do your work. That we would get over ourselves and be willing to minister for you. Thank you for your sacrifice on the cross. In Jesus' name.